This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. It's Thursday, Red Sox spring training is underway, and it's time for another Fenway Rundown podcast. This one on the go, I'm Chris Cotillo, Sean McAdam alongside. And you know what? On this job, with this pod, this time of year, we get to do some uh, episodes and some recording in some weird spots. So we are in the parking lot of Steinbrenner Field, the Yankees spring training stadium in Tampa, where Grapefruit League Media Day is about to begin as we record this. GMs and managers from all over the Florida-based teams are going to be talking. We felt like it was a worthwhile event to cover. But first, a lot of thoughts on Red Sox spring training. You've seen it all covered on the site, obviously through the pod with the episode we did the other day, and our insider text program, of which an ad will now be read to you by Sean McAdam. Well, thank you for teeing that up for me, Chris. A reminder that to join the Red Sox Insider text program and have access to me, to Chris Cotillo, to Chris Smith, to be able to contribute to mailbag episodes down the road, all you need to do is text the word JOIN to 617-751-6257, then click on the link to subscribe. That comes with a free 14-day trial period, after which you'll be charged $4.99 per month. A true pro's pro, Sean McAdam wrote down that phone number on his hand as we sit here in the parking lot, not at our usual setup. So we'll keep it brief today, or a little briefer than normal. Another episode coming to you later in the week, but just some thoughts on you know what we've seen from you know, really three, four days at Red Sox camp in Fort Myers. I talked and I spoke a little bit earlier in the week about how you know there is kind of a sense that there's not much in the way of storylines. There's not much in the way of drama. Um, maybe a, a big addition, a surprise addition would shake that up. We don't think that's the case. Sean and I talked about Alex Cora's future and how that's a big storyline earlier in the week. We've covered that, and I think you know the last couple of days, the big one, Sean, was Kenley Jansen. He arrived at camp a little later than everybody else, which is not a big deal, but he did show up with an injury, a minor injury, and the talk is still about trade talks surrounding Jansen and you know if the Red Sox plan on moving him potentially before opening day in a move that could really free up some money. You had some reporting on that as well. Yeah, the Red Sox have let other teams know that while they'll listen on Kenley Jansen, and that's obviously been the case for much of the offseason, they are not interested, at least for now, in taking back any of the $16 million he's due. Uh, they would prefer to have some team take that money off their hands and be able to give them a decent prospect or two. We'll see what the availability in the market is, but for now, the fact that Jansen is slowed, even if it's a minor injury, even if it's something uh, that probably isn't going to be a long-term concern. You would think that evaluators and general managers would want to see Jansen throw at some point this spring now that he has that minor setback. I still believe that they're going to hold on to him and maybe shop him at the deadline. I don't think they'll get much less at the end of July than they would right now, even though you're getting him for only the final third of the season. I think teams are in desperation mode sometimes at the deadline. Sometimes you have teams with set closers who have injuries, sometimes underperformance, <coughs> excuse, <clears throat> excuse me, on the part of 
uh, a veteran or established closer. Uh, we see guys like that move in August and July all the time. I think that's when Jansen goes, but they've made it clear that they'll at least listen. And, you know, I think one of the things that was asked of Kenley Jansen the other day is, are you paying attention to the noise? Are you paying attention to the trade rumors? And kind of not a surprise that the laid-back guy he is, he's tried to ignore it. He said he's going to pitch for whatever team that he's on. He's going to try to be a veteran leader uh, and is really ignoring the noise, which should be no surprise. You know, Kenley Jansen was both privately and publicly pretty adamant and pretty vocal about, you know, being diff or I guess disappointed, uh, maybe angry. The Red Sox did not do more to add at the deadline in late July, early August. He was a little bit more diplomatic with that, talking about the roster as currently constructed, but I thought it was telling that when asked if he thought they were a playoff team, he said, eh, you never know. Uh, that's not necessarily a ringing endorsement, and I do think that that is kind of where these Red Sox think they are. A lot has to go right for them to contend, um, but until the games are played, in the words of Kenley Jansen, you never know. Kenley Jansen, I did a little quick research on this yesterday, um, and you, Sean, wrote about a culture change, all that type of stuff. Kenley Jansen's the only Red Sox player with more than eight years of service time. I think Story has eight exactly. Devers has about six. O'Neill, Pavetta, Giolito, Ref Snyder. There's a lot of guys in that five to six year range, but only Jansen with you know more than eight, more than ten. Last year they had a few more veterans. You know, Sale obviously has been around for a very long time. Turner. A very, very long time. You know, you've had guys that have, you know, a, a Kluber had been, you know, a 10-year guy in the majors. A lot of these guys have been around. Jansen's now kind of the elder statesman there, story as well. In terms of leadership, I think we're seeing for the second straight year with the lack of star player, star power, with the lack of, you know, all-star players, people who you wouldn't anticipate Stepping up to try to be leaders are Nick Pavetta is one of them. You know, we talked a lot about Kike Hernandez's resume. Does he have the resume to be the leader of the team? That was a question asked by Duke Castiglione, a pretty famous one, and that led to a lot of back and forth. But I think, you know, a year removed, I don't think it was a horrible question, and Kike's performance and the way the year went kind of bore that out. Nick Pavetta now kind of taking on that leadership role. Trevor Story. Where do you see the leadership coming from on this team? And as you wrote about, what what is this culture change you're talking about? I'll get to the second part in a minute, Chris, because I'm still not sure that that's perfectly clear what they're referring to. But certainly Trevor Story is emerging as a more vocal clubhouse guy. Uh, he has said that in the past he was someone who liked to lead by example. He was a guy that liked to play hard, uh, do all the right things and sort of serve as a little bit of a mentor or role model. But you can see him, and maybe this comes after being here for two years, even though he missed a good chunk of it last year, recovering from that elbow surgery. I think he's a little more comfortable in his own skin. He's been here for two seasons now. He understands the market, understands the organization, and it is kind of his time to step forward. We saw that in January when he held that infield boot camp in the Dallas area near where he lives in the offseason trying to get comfortable with some of the younger players who are going to be part of this, Vaughn Grissom included, uh, and, you know, the David Hamilton, some of the other young infielders, and Manuel Valdez, others trying to uh, get a comfort factor going with them and also build a little bit in terms of camaraderie and team bonding. But 
the the notion of a culture change i understand what they're saying there's that usually um you know spring training is a pretty casual atmosphere uh guys come in now in 2024 usually in very good shape almost all players train year round now they might take two weeks maybe even a month after the previous season to just rest and recover but by Thanksgiving, they're back at it, and when they arrive in mid-February, they're ready to go. So that isn't an issue. But you hear guys like Story talking about wanting to have a more competitive environment so that the drills are not kind of half-assed, so that they're not just going through the motions on pitchers' fielding practice or base-running drills. They want to play and get ready for the season with a purpose and hope that that aggressiveness, that intensity, that battling for every single uh, thing, whether it be a job on the roster, more playing time, doing things properly in a fundamental way, that all those good habits and intensity carries over to the regular season. To me, it's not going to make up for the lack of talent or close the talent gap in the division. But maybe it has them playing, uh, let's face it, this has not been a good fundamental team the last couple of years. That doesn't reflect well on the manager. And the fact that players are saying we need a culture change, I think that also does not reflect well on Alex Cora. It's going to be interesting to see how that balance gets struck. I agree totally on the point about talent. you know, And I think there's a lot of themes or buzzwords or quotes that come out uh, and it's where the focus goes for a day. Culture change, as Trevor Story and Nick Pavetta spoke about yesterday, or pitching infrastructure, or you know, we're reshuffling the front office, or we're or bulking up, we're adding Theo. All these things are off the field, you know, some tangible, some intangible, but it's not, you know, Jordan Montgomery, right, or, or Blake Snell, or a guy like that that could help. And like, it, it, it's how they're trying to do it without adding to that CBT number, which I still think is the biggest story around this team right now. In terms of leadership, you know, you talk about star power. We talked about it last year. You know, Devers, uh, after signing the extension in a room without, you know, Bogarts, Betts, Martinez, all those guys. Now I think it's even more stark. You know, Devers isn't in Florida yet, but the room without, you know, all those guys and, and even guys like Sale and Verdugo and Turner and Paxton and Duvall, some veteran guys, like, I guess I didn't, because the focus, our focus all winter was on who they're not adding, I kind of maybe forgot until I saw it in person how much they've lost. And in terms of veterans, like, you look at the lineup, there's a lot of guys in that zero to two service time range from Wong to Casas, to Grissom, to Abreu, to Duran, Rafaela, Yoshida. Like, it's an extremely inexperienced team. I'm not saying those guys aren't talented. I'm not saying there's upside. In some cases, there's, you know, major league success already. But I've been struck by that here so far. Yeah, and I think it's particularly telling within the pitching group. Because as you and I were talking yesterday, uh, you know, it is interesting to see somebody like Nick Pavetta step up and assume a little bit of that leadership role with Chris Sale gone. He's, he's, he's been a swingman in his career, and now he's the leader of the pitching staff, well, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and more pointedly, this was a guy who pitched himself out of the rotation last May. Now, we're not, uh, we're not poking fun at him for that. Struggles at the major league level are to be expected, but it is kind of, again, a del- delicate balancing act for a guy who hasn't really established himself as a 
uh, as an accomplished major league starter for any consistent period, is now the guy trying to lead the way. And it points out how much they have lost in the last five years in terms of that experienced, accomplished starting pitcher. Nate Evaldi, gone. Chris Sale, now gone. Rick Porcello, gone. David Price, gone. James Paxton, gone. To the point where, even though Giolito is a little more accomplished, he's new. It's a little hard for him to come in and assume that mantle right away. So it defaults to Pavetta. And whether he does a good job with it or not, the fact that they are looking to someone who has been, I don't want to say journeyman because he's only on his third organization, but somebody who really hasn't fully established himself, the fact that he's the guy as the Pied Piper among the pitchers speaks volumes and not in a good way. Yeah, I think that that's pretty interesting, just the fact that the leaders of your rotation are Nick Pavetta and Lucas Giolito, two guys who... One thing I didn't know, and I guess I didn't realize, Pavetta brought it up yesterday. They knew each other and pitched together in the lower levels of the Nationals pitching staff many years ago. You know, Pap- uh, Pavetta was traded actually for Jonathan Papelbon. Not many people know that, but you know, from the Nationals to the Phillies, so long before he was a member of the Red Sox. Giolito traded from Washington to the White Sox before he started his major league career. So those guys have a history. Maybe they, you know, come up with some similar ideas. You know, both guys coming out of college being, you know, high, pretty high draft picks by the um, Washington Nationals. I do think, you know, asking them to set the tone when they're no sure thing, either of them, is a big ask. And we know, you know, Pavetta has had an up-and-down tenure, lights out at times, you know, struggles at others. Giolito had to settle for really a one-year deal because he's been so bad the last couple of years. And talking about turnover and talking about, you know, the, the names you just added, I'll even say Corey Kluber, you know, like he was horrendous here. That's been well-documented. It was a bad signing. It was a, a, a terrible waste of $10 million, and he gave them nothing. But it's a guy with two Cy Youngs, you know, like at the end of his career, obviously he retired, but I mean, he still, you know, was instrumental for some younger guys. If you look at who they have, Pavetta and Giolito leading the rotation, potentially even more turnover because if they pitch well, they're getting good free agent contracts and both up after the year too. So speaks to, you know, not just on the field, how much they could use a Montgomery type or, you know, somebody of that veteran mold, but also, you know, in the clubhouse and those pitching meetings too. Yeah, I mean, as you noted, Kluber was a huge disappointment. He made, you know, however many starts, uh, some mop-up relief appearances when he got bumped out of the rotation. But he was a guy that could offer uh, a lot of instruction and guidance and did to a guy like Garrett Whitlock. I remember talking to Whitlock last year about the impact that Kluber had on him, how they would sit together in the dugout and uh, dissect whoever was starting that night and... Kluber would try to get him to anticipate what the pitcher was going to do next. Uh, that kind of thing can be invaluable for a young guy. Now, it didn't translate into success for Whitlock a year ago, who had a real up-and-down season in terms of his own performance, but there are seeds that get planted. There are lessons that get taught off the field, away from the mound, that can really turn a pitcher around, and you wonder who's the guy who steps into that role and who takes on that kind of responsibility now? And again, I think that's a piece that's lacking. One other note on Corey Kluber as we sit here at Steinbrenner Field, you know, talk about the kind of impact he can have on a pitching staff. 
the Yankees are close, it seems, to hiring him as a senior advisor just days after he retired. So something interesting there. One other point I want to make, I think the Red Sox are putting a lot of pressure on Sedan Rafaela, Sean. We listened to Alex Cora's uh, presser today. We were not there because we were driving up to, or up to Tampa, and that was my takeaway. I said it then. I'll say it now. You know, He might start the year in AAA. I think he will. Um, but Alex Cora saying, once he's ready, he's our center fielder. Like They remain high on the guy. I do wonder, is that you know, pumping up his trade value a little bit to try to get a starting pitcher? Or do they really think that he can be the center fielder pretty early on in the season? Either way, a lot of talk about him early on here. There is a lot of talk, but I don't know that I agree with you on the pressure thing. Uh, I, I think they've made it pretty clear that the center field job can be won by Rafaela. Uh, I think there would be more pressure if they said, yep, he's our guy. Uh, we don't care what we see over the next four or five weeks in Grapefruit League play. Uh, he's going to be our center fielder and in the lineup in Seattle in late March. They're saying that if he shows them the ability to take that step forward offensively, because as you noted, defensively there's not much question that he's ready now. He's going to make his mistakes. Today Alex Cora referenced a, a, a poor play and read that he had in Toronto where the ball was hit over his head. Uh, that was a, a big glaring mistake, but those are going to happen. Those things are going to happen with young players. Everyone knows that Rafaela is incredibly athletic with great range, speed. He can do everything, whether it's in the infield or outfield. So they believe right now he's ready defensively. The question is, what does he show them uh, over the next month or so in terms of plate discipline, uh, you know, getting on base, all those things, making better swing decisions. If he's made enough progress, he'll be here. If he's not, he'll be in Worcester, and he understands that equation. So I don't think it's too much pressure. Uh, they're, they're saying it's there to be one. Let's see if he can do it. It's not the end of the world if he has to begin the first two months in Worcester. And you know what? The Red Sox have built up. I know they still could add an outfielder and still could add a right-handed bat, and maybe the offensive production is not there at the point it should be. But in terms of if Rafael is not ready – they have built-in depth there. Jaron Duran, who once again comes to camp as the most forgotten guy the Red Sox have, despite having a really good year last year before getting hurt. Tyler O'Neill can play center. You know about Abreu and Yoshida. Ref Snyder's still on the roster. Like They are insulated, so it's not like they're dropping down to Rymel Tapia or one of these guys. Or Two years ago when they went in with a right field uh, mix of Christian Arroyo against lefties and things like that. Like They do actually have the depth now. Sean, just as I said, Duran, I think, has been forgotten about a little bit. Still a dynamic guy. There are some trade rumors. I remain high on him, think he could have a good year. Um, does it feel like the Red Sox are a little lower on him where Rafaela is starting to you know, uh, ascend and we saw what he could do in September? Well, I think they recognize that Rafaela has a much higher defensive ceiling. Uh, Duran, for all his speed, and he has made improvements in the outfield, uh, is still probably uh, – at best, a little bit above average as a defender in center. He doesn't throw particularly well. Um, they could live with him, and they like his offensive upside. But I think there's some concern about is what they saw last year uh, something that can be delivered on a full-time basis. He had, um, you know, about three good months last season. It, it took him a while to get the opportunity. It happened when Duvall... A few weeks into the season, breaks his wrist. That opened the door for him. And to Duran's credit, he walked through it and got himself regular playing time. 
but it is still a relatively small sample size of success at the big league level. They may be thinking, hey, his value is never going to be higher than it is now coming off that spurt that he had in last summer, so let's trade him and get something to maximize his value now. It may be that they see him as an inferior center field option to Rafaela. So again, move him now while you can. If he's going to be a backup, then his value drops. Uh, I, I think they remain to be convinced about Duran's role going forward. And that will be something to follow over the next couple of weeks. As we said, plenty of coverage coming from here in Tampa today and back in Fort Myers tomorrow. Grapefruit League Media Day about to start. We'll have updates everywhere, including Sean, the Red Sox Insider Text Program. Tell the good people how they can find it. They can find it by simply texting the word JOIN to 617-751-6257 and then click the link to subscribe. Then you get a 14-day trial period, and after that it's $4.99 a month to keep current on all Red Sox news throughout the year, not just spring training, regular season, off-season too. Contribute questions for the mailbag, for future podcasts, and exchange ideas and questions with myself, Chris Cotillo, and Chris Smith. I had a couple other topics I might have wanted to touch on, but we got to tell the people it's getting hot in this car. So that's been the Fenway Rundown for today. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.